Hello, Winternet. This is ESE Insight Calling. I'm Ewan Spence. And I'm Greg Watts. And this is a Connections Over Coffee. Join me now for a chat over coffee, a songwriter who's been at many Eurovisions, who's seen more power chords than he's seen key changes. Oh, maybe, I suppose it depends on the, the style of music you had earlier in your career. We'll find all that out and more. Greg Watts joins me now. Hello, Greg. Hello. A familiar name for anyone who goes through the, the writing credits at Eurovision. How many is it now? Well, writing, I've only got a couple on the writing, actually. I think it's more, I'm more of a publisher um, and song camp organiser and putting people together. So of of those, we've got 11 in seven years, um, seven consecutive years. The writing, I did a couple um, back in 2017, which was um, uh, Poland and Czech Republic. What's the difference then? What are all these elements? Because we always see songwriting and, and a lot of people know that there's a split between the sort of person who writes the notes and the person who writes the lyrics. What yeah. does the producer do? What are the other bits of elements of a music team that are important to the mix that people might not be aware of? So producer is person who kind of makes the recording. Um, so it can, it can kind of all mix together these days. You have a, a melody writer and a lyric writer but actually both of those can actually swap over and a producer can actually swap over to writing melody and lyrics as well. But a producer's making the track, making the recording, playing the instruments. Um, that's a modern day producer. Old style producer was actually not really part of the songwriting. They, they would like George Martin, you know, you don't see him credited as a songwriter on the Beatles records, but I think nowadays he would be, he, but he was the person who a producer was someone who organized the recording those days in, in the studio organized so. why do you think he would have been credited then because my brain it just goes it's Lennon McCartney and, and once an album they let George have a go so why do you think George should have George Martin should have got on those not saying he should have been but I'm saying the way that music has changed is the producer who actually produces the record or makes track has become a lot more prominent in the actual songwriting process so in the Beatles days George, um, George Harrison or, um, or Paul McCartney or John Lennon probably came in with a song that's written and then they produced it and they recorded it. So it was two separate entities. Whereas now, for instance, if I'm running a songwriting camp, the producer's there on the camp as the part of the writing team and he makes the track and does the recording. But he's, so it's moved. It's moved quite, quite a lot with track makers. I find that evolution fascinating. Why do you think that is? Technology, mainly, because tech because producers can produce very quickly. So in George Martin's day, again, you went into you know the Beatles went into Abbey Road, this massive studio, and they needed someone to organise the orchestra, the band, who plays, who play, who presses all those buttons at Abbey Road. You know that's a massive, massive job. You need an engineer. You need you need all sorts of people doing that directing. So the, the process was bigger. Now. Actually, all you need to re- produce a song is a computer. You know, most I've, I've seen songs produced without even an instrument. I don't know if that's the best songs in the world, but actually you can have a computer and a keyboard, and therefore that keyboard can make all sorts of things happen on the computer, which George Mar- Martin 
would have had to do in a big Abbey, studio Abbey Road. So the process has changed dramatically over, over the years. So obviously we've used the Beatles and George Martin now, but there's there's countless producers throughout music who all have their signposts. Are you glad you're a producer in this era, or do you think you would have preferred going to the 60s when technology was new, or the 80s when electronics started seeping in? What era is your love? Ooh, the 60s would have been a magic era because of everything changing. Actually, I was, my love is the 80s, you know, that where everything moved, the keyboard, the electronic. You know, I came out from 1983 as an eight-year-old going to our price, a Woolworths looking through the actual, um, you know, the records. And I think that was, I was talking about that some just a minute ago, that my magical era was probably 1983 to 86. And I think that was a really, a real change of, technology then as well because you think about um the awards that they used to have in america comment which one whether it's the grammys they, they banned the keyboard players like howard jones and thomas dolby they weren't allowed to win awards in the early 80s and then by 1985 86 they were winning awards it's like it was you know we can't music's not keyboards or technology it's guitars and band and then suddenly within a couple of years it's accepted so that, that, I think, being a period of change is, is exciting. I guess going back to the Beatles, the 60s was all about innovation and change. So particular era, but I'd say for me, the 80s. What album did the 8 to 11-year-old Greg play to death and wear out the needle? Yeah, I was mainly a singles person and 12-inch, lots of 12-inch. But album, um, Seven and the Ragged Tiger by Duran Duran. Was That's right. You're, you're on the Duran Duran side. I am now a happy bunny. Charlene is listening. It's going, oh, Spandau. But no, no, Duran Duran. <laughs> I, I don't mind a bit of Spandau, but definitely a Duran. I think I've got every single Duran Duran album, 12-inch, import, you know, all those sort of things that I, I could have. And I can still play them on my record player. There's Spandau, there's a few songs I like, like True and Through the Barricades and things like that, but not like massive, massive fan of every single thing they did. So, I mean, I have to mention Bucks Fizz. Bucks Fizz were also one of my my favourites at the in the early eighties. I remember when they had their coach crash, going and lying on my bed and digging out. I think it was the greatest hits and being caught, and actually having one of my first emotional connections with music. Being quite sad about them having their coach test, um, coach crash, but actually the the musical connection, listening to the song, you know, making me feel not better, but feel connected to them in a sense. Which I think is what a lot of my musical journey is about is connection with music. So, so is that where the Eurovision connection started then with Bucks Fizz first? That was my first memory of Eurovision would be Bucks Fizz um, as a six-year-old, nineteen eighty-one. Am I correct? Or was it? If not, yeah. we'll get comments. So I'll just leave them in. But yeah, as a, so, nineteen eighty-one. If it's that, I'm a six. Um, so that's my first memory. I remember. Can't remember what her name was, but the German girl Nicole with the guitar. Year after that, a bit. Um, I then did watch Eurovision as growing up, but I can't. You know, I haven't got a massive recollection of every single um, artist or singer. Scott Scott Fitzgerald was it getting to second as a UK later, and Ireland winning a lot in the nineties. Um, but I think my then, me then getting back into me becoming a music songwriter and a producer that then reconnected me with Eurovision um, particularly actually I think the first point was when I went to we were successful one of our first places we were successful was Belgium and some of our success um, this is as your produ- as the production company as a, yeah as a yes yeah, DWB as a writing team and and I, I think um, 
one of some of our success there dripped into their Eurosong um, final. So suddenly we had two songs or semifinals. Suddenly we had two songs in their Eurosong um, semifinals. So, so what, was that happenstance? Did that just come about? Yeah, because we were working a lot in Belgium, and we had pretty much every single artist in Belgium came to our studio in Surrey. Um, bar one or two. I actually mentioned it to an artist the other day. You were the only person who didn't come. Um, uh, this guy called Udo, uh, who I'm now good friends with. But um, he, everyone else came, and I think we had lots of releases. And then one of them was like, "Yeah, actually, we're going to use this song. To, we didn't. We won't put it on our album, but we'll go put it into the the national Eurovision selections." Um, so that was a song. Uh, that was actually one we published. Watch We Move by Katerina Gostarkas. And there was a second song called Not Right by Eve Campbell. Um, I think Katerina went out in the semifinals and Eve Campbell got into the final. So we then went to the final, watched it, and kind of were like, wow, Belgium do this amazingly. What's going on in the UK? And I think that was our first stirrings of how can we help the UK to get, get it going. What know? year so would this be? I think it was about 2006. So that, that's quite a jump forward. So let's just hold that thought for a minute. And you've, you've gone from being Duran Duran, listening, taking all the music, and now you're a pro- producer. What happened in, in, in between? What was the career always going to be in music? I always wanted to be in music. I was also songwriting from about 14, 15 just writing songs. First song I ever recorded was um, Strawberry Fields Forever. Actually, another Beatles one. But actually, there was a, there was a cover of that um, by someone called Candy Flip at the time. And I um, I discovered that I wasn't doing music at school, and I discovered that my music, a music teacher had a studio, and we were doing a Christmas show in two months' time, and I said, can I go in and record a song? Um, and pick that one, and that was kind of my first love of recording. And But I was already writing songs as well. And I, I guess I was then in various bands, various pop dance duos, got a record deal actually with an, um, a label in Japan, then sort of went through this process where it was like, am I really an artist or am I a songwriter? And actually I came back to the, I don't want to be the front person or the artist. And I came, so I kind of turned down some record deals and sort of moved into the songwriting area. Um, and then, but all whilst this was all going on, in my 20s, probably 22, I'd say 28, I was working in a bank um, as cash, firstly as a cashier. And I was always like, I'm going to leave soon to work in the music industry. <laughs> and slowly but surely, I got more into the bank, uh, as in, uh, not necessarily enjoying it, but need, you know, needing the money to actually live. Um, and I think into sort of about year six or seven, I kind of thought, well, I need, I'm a, I am staying. I must take this seriously. So I then trained as a mortgage advisor, became one of the best salesmen in the southeast. And uh, just as I was doing really well, uh, my then wife said to me, I think it's time for you to leave and do the songwriting. So I took a year off from the bank, left, and they tried to persuade me to stay. And I was like, no, I'm going. Um, This is what I've been dreaming of for years. Um, Gave myself a year. And actually, that gave me the chance to go and connect with all the opportunities that you couldn't connect with with working at the same time. So at the end of that year, about 11th month, hadn't quite made any money, but I was getting close. Um, and again, had a discussion. We said, well, let's give it three more months. And on month 13, I got offered a job to set up a publishing department 
um, because I was impressing people of how I was writing songs and selling and a sort of a record label sort of said, well, we need you to set up a publishing department for us. So then I was employed for a couple of years, songwriting and learning about publishing and pitching songs. Um, and then I've never been back to the bank. So it became a career. But I think I'd, with a lot of songwriters, I'm, I'm working with lots now, doing lots of courses and mentoring and things. One of the struggles is doing two jobs, you know, in a sense. If you can focus on one thing, that really helps. I was going into the bank, even when I was part-time, I was going in the mornings and then coming home and trying to do some work, but half a day wasn't quite enough. Or, you, you know, you'd get distracted and do something else, whereas full days, it meant you could full, fully focus on it. And also had a year, so having a, a time scale of, if this doesn't work, I'm going back to the bank. That was a, I'm going to make this work. The bank was okay, but it wasn't my passion. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Songwriting music was always my passion. It strikes me, though, that you're saying that people were coming in, that you were good at promoting, you were good at sort of finance, the business, the, the back-end side of things, but you're also the, the top mortgage seller in the Surrey region. I'm sorry, but was that the X factor that got you into the music business, that extra skill of selling? Um, I think it helped. I think, it, you know, and I think actually more than what, what helped more was instead of being at the bank and just being there and not really achieving, I think achieving something in a different place, it made me feel like I can win. You know, I can do this. So I think then I went into the music businesses with a different sort of mindset of, yeah, I need to sell my song, you know, I need to write songs, but I can't, there's no point just writing songs and sitting in my room. I also need to sell the songs. And I think that's a lot of, so a lot of my success over the years has been sort of tenacity, being able to talk to people, being able to communicate, being able to listen to what they need as, you know, same as the bank, when people come in and, you know, want a mortgage, I listened to them for quite a few meetings and then sort of sold them what they needed. Same as songs, you know, in a sense, it's a slow process. You go in and have a meeting and you don't necessarily sell on the first meeting, but you build up the relationship. And later that people, because they like you and because they like the songs, they start to take songs from you. So it definitely was, a you know, something I learned from that period was I could take into the music. What was your well. best win in those early days of music? Best win? Yeah. Um, we had we wrote a song that we was we were trying to get a song for Robbie Williams because um, one of my partners, I two two business partners who are both producers, which is why one another reason that I was top liner and going out and selling because they're producing. But one of them sounded like um, Robbie Williams, and we thought, well, let's try and write a song for Robbie. Um, we wrote a fantastic song called Never Know, and it didn't get to Robbie, unfortunately. Um, we soon learned, you know, Robbie writes his own songs, but. Um, one of our first successes was a song, uh, this, this particular song got out in Belgium. Um, we changed the name because we had to rewrite the lyrics for a TV show, but it became a song called Don't Ever Go. And yeah, it was a top five song in Belgium. It was basically played on radio all summer. It was on their popular TV show called Asper, which is like our, I guess, our Inspector Morse. It was the theme tune for that. And actually that song actually got released twice by other artists within a year, one in Croatia, one in Japan. And this Belgian artist also got a deal in Japan through us. Um, we kind of connected them with Avex. And yeah, so that was a big one. It kind of kept us going probably for two or three years and kept us thinking, oh, we need another one of those. So yeah, I'd say Don't Ever Go by Bourne Crane, which was originally called Never Know. Why Belgium? 
Because that's Belgium that's popped up in Eurovision, Belgium that's popped up in your big wins. Yeah. Accidental, but at the same time, meant to be. <laughs> I think I think we just found, we were going into the UK, we had people liking songs, and then they say, what have you done before? And you'd be like, oh, we haven't done anything before, but they're good songs, and you needed a track record. So I was going to an event called Midem, which is in France, and I met and my first meeting there, which I was late for because someone else hadn't bought the ticket, and then I got there, and I met someone who I didn't know, who wasn't the person I was supposed to meet. It was another person from the company, and gave them a CD, came away thinking that will never happen, and they became a really great connection in Belgium, um, a company called BMC, um, and basically they ended up helping us get many, many hits in Belgium. So it was all about you found a right connection. You found someone who wanted us. So if someone wants your songs, you deliver lots of good songs. They helped us get lots of hits. And we had that. We were then building a track record somewhere. So when we went to another place, to another meeting in the UK, have you had done anything before? Yeah, we're number five with this artist. We're number this. Even if it doesn't validate it totally, it validates it a bit. So it's all stepping stones in, in the music industry. So I think Belgium was a big success first. So. And this is like 2006, 2007, 2008. The yeah. internet isn't as connected as it is now. Nowadays, it's dead easy to work with the collaborations around the world. It was still very much in its infancy in that point. Yeah. So we could send emails and MP3s, um, but it was initial meetings that we met in Cairns and then we came back. And then we, but I think again, if, if the business wasn't, hadn't, the internet wasn't there, I wouldn't. I don't think we'd have been successful in Belgium. We just wouldn't have been able to get our songs there. Wouldn't have been able to go for meetings. It's, at least it's, it's reasonably close. Um, so yeah, we weren't able to co-write or anything like that online. We actually had to have, go to Belgium to write with artists, or main, mainly because we had a studio, and because that company came with a couple of artists at the beginning, they realised we can just send people to the studio. At that point, we were in Surrey and. Um, Eurostar was straight into Waterloo. So it was very quick. It was Waterloo, then down about 45 minutes to us. It was easier than coming by a plane. So, yeah, the, and I guess because you have one success, people are following it going, we want those guys. So, yeah, it was all in person in those days. How much has the internet impacted music as a whole then since that point up to now, like just the last 10 years or so? I mean, massively in the sense that it can... Anyone can work with anyone all over the world at different times. Again, our, most of us, I'd say 95% of our success has been international. Um, that wouldn't have happened if it was just us trying to get somewhere. So again, in a way, we would, I would, I'd probably still be in the bank if it wasn't for the internet because it means I can connect with anyone anywhere at any, any point. Um, yeah, it's sped, sped up the process. So instead of me having to wait for someone in the UK to write, song for i can write with, for anyone all over the world and that writing still happens now but that physical connection that in real life is that a big part of why you you run song camps yes i'd, I'd say so and covid has proved this we did some song camps online and they did work to an extent but the moment you were back in the room with people you were like well songwriters need personal connection it's the, you know, and, and I, I think I mentioned connection right at the beginning. I connected with music and emotional connection. I think as a songwriter, that connection is really, really important. And I think actually the songs that win Eurovision or the songs that do really well are because we, as the audience, connect with them. So that's 
that personal connection is, is, is really important. So yeah, yeah, Song Camps has been one reason to get people in the room together, um, connecting in ways where they wouldn't if they were on a, in a room on their own, Spe- specifically cross-culturally, because I think I'm a big fan of if you mix culture in music, you come up with something new. And I think for certainly looking at when you're pitching songs, you need something new. You don't want to be pitching the same thing that everyone else is pitching. And I think your vision is the same. What's new? You know, what, how, could, how do I stand out? And actually, sometimes that's mixing cultures. For those people who haven't been to a song camp or aware how they work, set the scene for us. How does it work? So we gather probably 18 to 30 people um, together. And in the morning of the first day, I will do a small presentation talking about what we're going to do, probably be 10 to 15 minutes, introducing myself, introducing everyone. We'll then send people into rooms. Um, so in, usually in rooms of um, in teams of three, maybe four if you've got an artist. Um, and that team writes a song during the day. And I always say that basically you've got to write the song and you've got to record the song. You haven't got to fully produce the song because, again, that can be done later. You've got to have it a little bit produced so that it can be recorded. But I tend to find if people go away from the camp without a song, the, the actual um, vocal recorded, sometimes it disappears and never gets done. So and then at the end of that day, everyone finishes. And then day two, same process, different talk, try and inspire them differently, maybe show a video, put them into different teams. And then so therefore people are sparking off someone different each day. And then day three, same formula again. Switch teams, do new talk. Um, I usually do three days, maybe four maximum. Um, and then at the end of it, each songwriter has got three songs. And usually at the end, the end night, we'll do a listening session. Everyone will hear the songs. We'll usually get them dance to the songs or something in, in a sense. But And then after the camp, everyone goes home. Everyone's really connected. They've written with lots of different people, but they've also had dinner with lots of people. They've had discussions. And then you tend to find that they all write with people they haven't worked with you know, later at other stages. So it's a big way to connect with people. And actually, that from the moment we're back, give people about a week, and then I'm sort of following up saying, okay, how do we finish this song? So it's actually the, finish the production so we can present it. If you've got an artist, we've got to finish it off completely and then present to the label or present to the delegation. If we haven't got an artist, it's to pitch. For instance, Cleopatra, 14 mixes after we left, um, it was ready to be pitched. But it was took a, you know took a good couple of weeks. Outside of Eurovision, what's been your biggest win from a song camp? Probably Japanese releases, because we also did uh, used to do J-pop and K-pop song camps. And as you could think, there was one released a couple of years ago, which was called... It's a Christmas song, and now I've forgotten. I've still got COVID fog, a little bit foggy back. Um, but it was a Christmas song by Arashi, and it sold over a million copies on an album. Um, and it came from a Christmas song camp we did in July, something like four years ago. And then two years later, it's out of Christmas. And it's a very surreal feeling writing a Christmas song in July in the sun. But then when it comes out, comes out and it sells that many records a couple of years later, uh, CDs, DVDs, that, 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 it's not, it's because of you, getting a lot of creative people together kind of creates a lot of, it's quite intense, but you actually bring out a lot of really strong songs from it. Um, 
it's kind of friendly competition. I remember, so I used, I ran a couple of UK Eurovision camps before I was the BBC A and R. I was, I was um, doing it for Hugh Goldsmith, um, and he would come as A and R. And you know, there was no commitment. It was just we'll write some songs for you and hope that you get some songs there. And he came and A and R'd it for us. And we did the listening session the night before everyone left. So the listening session on day three. So they still had day four to write. And some of the best songs were written on day four because the friendly competition, listening to them all together, spurred people on to thinking, wow, we've got some great songs here. Now we need to do even better on day four. So, but actually it was friendly competition because everyone was there together and trying to aim to be there together. It was, you were happy for, you know, whoever got through, you were happy for, but actually that competition spurred people on. I think again, goes back to Lennon McCartney. They didn't write every single song together. There was a point where Lennon was coming in with a song and Paul McCartney knew he was going to be credited on it as well. And therefore, I think Paul McCartney says it in his book, one of his books. I'm not saying anything that should, I shouldn't. But it's, you know, he would come in and John Lennon had a great song and he was like, okay, next one, I'm going to have to write something even better. So it took them like this. And I think that's the idea of camp. You're hearing everyone's doing great things. So it pushes you forward to do even more. What is it like when the song gets to the artist? And I'm thinking specifically in Eurovision here, because when we do our jukebox jury song reviews, one of the things that's talked about is the connection the artist has with the song and the idea that a song a song written and on the shelf isn't as strong as a song that is written by the artist. But that just sounds now too simplistic. Well, we've got examples of both. So, in a sense, our very first Eurovision entry, which was Agnetta's Icebreaker, was written on a songwriting camp, our very first Eurovision songwriting camp, with Agnetta. So she was writing songs with writers we'd put her with, and she had a, she had something she wanted to say. So there was an icebreaker, and there was a couple of other songs, similar themes, but she wanted to say that. So it really came from her heart. And I think um, everyone knows, people know the sort of story of Agnetta. It's, um, you know, she was talking about mental health and lots of things in that song, and that's ended up, you know, she's publicly talked about that since. Um, or you've got Cleopatra, which was just an amazing song written on a camp without the artist there, and therefore you can pitch that song to various different people. Of course we had in mind they were writing for a female artist that could be I don't know, that sort of Mediterranean, Eastern European area of, of Eurovision, which is quite a few countries, and then we'll pitch it to those countries and see what happens. So you've got two different examples of one means a lot to the artist, and one didn't necessarily mean a lot to the artist in um, lyrical context, but, but they really connected with it when they actually sang it. What's it like seeing that connection where the song the artist, the lyrics of production were all clicks. As a songwriter, that is kind of the ultimate feeling. It's not about necessarily the money you make. It's about does the song work with the artist and when they perform it, you know, are the audience singing it back? Does it feel, does it feel right? So again, yeah, when you, going back to Cleopatra, when the video of Cleopatra came out and we seen, we're seeing the reactions, the, uh, the Eurovision reactions where people are watching it back. That was such a magical moment for me and the songwriters where we could watch it and think the artist, the song, everything's connecting 
how we wanted it to because people are reacting at the moment we're like that's where we wanted them to react yes you know so that is kind of full circle for a songwriter i guess the the real connection of every you know, the, you know, the whole connection of everything the song the artist then the audience reacting as well it's quite, quite magical and that's kind of why we do it you don't I don't think you sit down and go, I'm going to write, I have heard someone say, I'm going to write a swimming pool today because they're trying to make you know, money to buy a swimming pool. But I think in general, you're sitting down writing a song that you want to be performed and see performed, which is one of the reasons that I have such a big problem with songwriters not getting inv- invited to go and watch Eurovision because it's part of the process. If they've written a song to go to Eurovision, they should be there to watch it. Because if you go back and watch those early Eurovisions, the, the songwriting credit is really big on the screen. Yeah. And then the artist name is smaller, but it's just slowly changed over time. So you've got this huge Brian, artist name and then tiny yeah, font at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, the artist should be there as well. The, the artist needs to be. But as a songwriting, if you've had, if you've been the seed that started it, you know, it's called the Eurovision Song Contest. So the song is an important part. And actually, when, therefore, when sometimes we say, no, no, the songwriters can't come, and you're like, but the songwriters actually a big part of the, the start of this so and I, I think that's in countries like sweden is seen much differently they actually have the songwriters in the green room at melody festival they take the songwriters to you know as part of the green room they they see them as part of the process and so everyone has that respect so for me you need that journey and every time i've taken a songwriter to a national final i remember taking abby f jones to a Danish final probably four years ago. She'd written a song and she came third. But as she walked in the room and saw her song performed, I saw her light up and I saw her understand this is how you do it. This year she wrote the Czech entry for um, Don't We Are Don't Me, so lights off. But it's almost like she had to go through the national finals to understand. And then that became, and she came after the national final, she came to me and sort of said, I'm doing this until I get there. Because she want, you know, it was a big thing. She wanted to do it, and I've had many, many writers say the same thing: go through the national final selection. Ian Kerno, who wrote, um, co-wrote um, "Icebreaker" by Agneta, he's sold sixty million records in the past. He's been, he was part of Stockhaven Waterman's team. He did E seventeen. He did work for, with Simon Cowell. Loads and loads of stuff. But when we got to Stockholm, and he first saw Agneta for, perform um, "Icebreaker." He turned to me and said, this is the biggest thing I've ever done, Greg. Because he saw the size of Eurovision and how much impact it had on hearing your song back. So that kind of made me go, this is something we need to really do as songwriters, because it's a really big competition to be involved in. One of the things that the Eurovision community is probably more aware of than most people watch Eurovision is sometimes songs can go around multiple artists going, would you like this in a national final? Would you like this for your national final? And each song gets a slightly different interpretation, but it's very rare that we hear the other implementations. What's it like that final step between we've got the song and then the artist puts their own thing on it and it doesn't go anywhere and then you have to hand it to somebody, not hand it to somebody else, but then somebody else goes and puts a spin on it. Yeah, because I think it's quite a big thing with Eurovision fans that it seems to be like, why? how can it be handed around? But it's very similar to the music industry or probably any other industry anyway, in the sense of, you know, Rihanna may want to do a song, record it, and it doesn't work for her. Because when you've recorded it, you kind of think, this doesn't feel like me. Or 
you know, the record label says it's not. So it's a similar process to that. It's disappointing because, of course, you're going, yeah, this is something that's going to go, and then it doesn't. And we've had several incarnations of several songs. Sometimes the song gets straight to the first artist and it goes, and that's it. And other times you give it to someone, they try it, and it didn't work. So then you need the song back, and then to, you know, everyone agrees, have the song back and, and pitch it somewhere else. Eventually, I think the ones that we've had that have got to Eurovision have ended up with the right artist. So, and actually then you kind of go, this was meant to happen with this artist. And the ones we didn't have was meant to not happen. Even at the time, it wasn't what you thought. You know, you were a bit gutted that it didn't happen. But then it's moved on to the right one. And you're like, okay, this they've put their heart and soul and connected with it. So how many national final entries and how many Eurovision entries have you had now? National finals, I, I'm going to say about 50. I, I, it's, it's, and we don't do as many as we used to. We used to do, let's try and get as many national finals, kind of the maths about it, that hopefully we'll win. And then we kind of learned that having 13 in the Lithuanian um, competition wasn't necessarily very sensible because you ended up not having, you know, you've got 12 that definitely can't make it. So um, Eurovision, we've had 11 in seven years that I've been involved with, in a sense. So as writer, publisher, A&R, song cap, in a sense. Okay. I think this, seven consecutive years is quite, yeah, I think that's not bad. As sense. well. But it's still, I know quite a lot of people that are doing national finals and not getting in or coming second or, um, which, and again, some, it seems to be, sometimes it's complete luck. Sometimes, you know, it's the right song, right time. Other times we've won not won a competition. You know, I think the UK final in 2018, we really thought we were going to win with Legends. Um, actually, we had four songs in that six. So really, mathematically, we should have we should win. And we didn't because Suri was amazing and blew us out of the water on the night. Um, and we just had have to accept that, you know, in a sense. But other times we've won and thought, well, how do we win that? So, so you, just, you just don't know. So you still have the hunger. Oh yeah, I, I want to win you. So now, now when I met the song, I did a songwriting camp three weeks ago in Belgium. Two, two, two songwriting camps. Belgium again. Funny that it came out, but I haven't been to Belgium for quite some time, and suddenly, suddenly Belgium's again. Um, yeah, and at the beginning, I say I'm not here to get in the competition. I'm in here to win now, because again, I've been there and I've done that, and I've I've really enjoyed it. But the best scenario was when we had Jim Cass and I was sit- actually I was sitting at home with my kids because we didn't get to go that year but we're getting 12s you know not everyone but we're getting 12 I think we we're third or fourth in the jury voting it was quite high and I'm with kids are going to start suddenly going I understand why you do this dad this is really exciting so I'm in it to win I don't mind going in it and not winning in the sense because some years we're not going to win we knew this year we wouldn't win with the Czech Republic it was it was you know in the middle but I'd love to go and win. So yes, hundred percent got the hunger to do it still. Hey, you have uh, worked with the BBC before. So, yeah. what were you thinking when all the twelves came in for Sam this year? I was really excited because I still know a lot of people that are there at the BBC. I still feel part of the change that's happened. And I think Hugh was a big part of that change as well. We were trying to implement certain things that the B- I think the BBC is it's like a, a big ship that you've got to turn. And a big ship doesn't turn quickly, but it's, you know, so we've been part of a journey that's been turning that ship and actually they've got the right people now running it. I think Lee Smith is fantastic at what he does. He's a real fan. 
and he's actually got um, Ben, I um, can't remember his last name, but the guy who's behind Julie Lupus Management, he's real UK industry. One of the things I, problems I had was I could get European, Swedes, great songwriters, but I couldn't really turn the UK people to being interested. So seeing Sam get 12 was like my journey back in 2006 where I thought, how do we get UK to do something in Eurovision? And actually, even there's even an article on the internet where I kind of said, got to kind of change Terry Wogan. I love Terry Wogan, but all the negative stuff about points voting and things like that, which Graham Norton did carry on. It's a bit better at now. Um, I think you've got to get the media to be behind us. And Sam Ryder winning and the UK music industry and the UK press suddenly being behind the UK changed absolutely massive, massively. I, I used to go to the... I go for a curry evening once a month with some dads. And after Eurovision, they'd all be like, it's political, isn't it? And I'd be like, trust me, it's not political. It's not about Brexit. It's because we haven't got the right package. Everything hasn't come together, in a sense. And this year, it was slightly political. (laughs) But they all said to me, it's not about the politics. It's about the song and the singer and the package. And Sam was first one for a long time who's been absolutely out of this world singer who owns that stage. It makes a difference. He's in the league of Polina, who came second, I know. He's in the league of Mount Zemelo. Those Jamala, those people who've won, who actually really come on the stage. And uh, the song was brilliant as well. And didn't it sound like a UK song? It felt a bit like Elton John, a bit like David Bowie, a bit like all those things that Europe associates with the UK. It's finding those connections again, isn't it? Exactly. So Europe probably went, this feels real. This feels really what the UK could send. I, the year I did it, um, with Bigger Than Us, it was a song, a song that was from Sweden, and I think it was probably one of the best songs that we had, you know, and the public voted for Michael, who did a really good job on the BBC, the Unicide Night. Um, there was a second song called Freaks, which was actually my favourite. I think that was far more British. And I think, actually, if you look on Spotify, there's a big reaction to Freaks. Um, so it may be that we just picked the emotional song on the night. It's a really similar, amazing, amazing performance. Not sure it was the best song, but she's an amazing performance. You can't beat, but, you know, she's good friends with Suri still, and uh, she was, you know, just got a great vocal. But I think um, with this one, Sam had the absolutely everything. And I think that, you know, couldn't speak more highly of the what the BBC team did. I sent them an email straight away and said, well done, this is absolutely amazing. And for me, even though I'm not involved, that's what I want for the UK is to actually be powerful in, in Eurovision again and for people going, yeah, we want the UK. Because I think Eurovision as itself, I think Christopher, Christopher Balkman said it, or someone said it, that having the UK as a strong contender in Eurovision makes Eurovision better, rather than us sort of dripping down the sides and never, no one really notices it. And it's just those tiny, narrow margins, a connection to a song, a connection to the team behind it, a connection to Belgium, a connection to the audience that just makes music as a whole so emotionally wonderful. Yeah. You think 26 songs, some really strong songs, some really good songs, some absolutely great songs, but why do we connect with a few more than the others? And it can be personal connection, but I think in general... There's three, the three or four best packages, whole, you know, song, singer, stage show, 
come up you know, come right to the top. Sometimes I think you miss there's a you know you miss one in the middle because it was a. I mean, someone said to me, "Did I like Greece this year?" And I was like, "Oh, I can't remember Greece." And then went back and listened to it. Thought, "Oh yeah, I did quite like that." But it was after a series of ballads that kind of I got bored with and went off to make a cup of tea. So you can get be the wrong song at the right time, or the right song at the wrong time. I think like you remember me and my guitar, the Belgian entry it was perfect that year because. Lots of other entries were big entries and big dance things, and he he was there with his guitar, so it, it bumped up, the, you know, with, with the viewers. So, and I think with Jim Cass, I think we got buried in the running order. In you know, we won semi-final one, and then we were six in the running order, and it kind of, I think that I'm not saying it was going to win because I'm not sure it would have won one, but I think it could have done even better with the public if it wasn't sixth in the running order. But it's still made connections, it's still personal, it's still wonderful to somebody out there. To hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, that song means something, irrespective of where it finishes. Exactly, yeah. And in a sense, we're talking about the UK and how much change impact that happened, but it didn't win. It didn't win. So actually, and actually I think the Ukraine winning, a lot of people have this, you know, it's politics, blah, blah, blah. But Eurovision was set up to, re- to un- unite Europe. And on when the Ukraine winning, it kind of united Europe. And actually, even the UK coming second, United Europe, everyone still thinks UK almost, it feels like a win, you know, in a sense. And I think if you, Spain came out of that really strongly. I think the Spanish song was, was a strong song. There's several songs that come out of it that you remember. There's other songs which less people will remember, but someone will, as you said, it, it, they'll connect with people. That's the thing, the beautiful thing about songs or music Everyone's different. Everyone likes something different. We're, it'd be a bit boring if we all liked the same thing completely, wouldn't it? So. It would indeed. Greg, thanks very much for your time and coming on, showing us a... My coffee's gone cold now because that happens when we, when we start talking about the Beatles. And I'm just like, yep. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't know that I can reheat the coffee. Imagine trying to reheat the Beatles. Ah. Uh, <laughs> you, you'd end up with, um, I don't know, the Rootles. Um but there's a connection there as well. Greg, thanks again. Thanks very much. And now, our traditional guitar playout. You've been listening to ESC Insights chat over coffee with you and Spence and Greg Watts. Find out more at www.escinsight.com and support us patreon.com slash ESC Insights. <laughs>